Good morning. <clears throat> For those of you that don't know me, my name is Clay. I'm one of the members here at the Baptist Church. And I wonder if anyone else like me has ever had a long-standing suspicion that becomes confirmed and you feel quite chuffed with yourself. Because that very thing happened to me this week. I've been doing youth work now off and on for about 20 years, and I've had this growing suspicion, and it's become more pronounced over the past several years. I'll just give you a brief example. So, so you'll, you'll see a kid at a club or whatever, and they'll be rambunctious, and they'll be rowdy, and they'll be disruptive, and you'll ask them to stop, and they'll apologize from time to time and try to do better, and then that kid will come back and say, oh, I've been diagnosed with ADHD. And then all of a sudden, when you ask, when you're trying to negotiate for better behavior, they just say, I'm ADHD, blah, 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 and they just keep going about their business. And the diagnosis actually becomes the reason or the excuse why they become disruptive, and there's no questions asked. Now, I'm not bagging on ADHD kids. I actually love them. They're a lot of fun. You never know what adventure or misadventure is coming next. It keeps things exciting. But we do this with a lot of things. Someone will say, I'm depressed. And then all of a sudden, everything they do comes from that place of depression. Or I'm anxious, and then everything they do comes from that place of anxiety. Now, I have been for the past two years, uh, for those of you that don't know, I've been working on a part-time master's in counseling, and we discussed this recently, and like I said, I was very chuffed with myself. My suspicion was confirmed. Now, what I want to do is a bit of a group therapy session, and I'm not even going to bill you for it to illustrate this point, okay? So there's a statement coming up on the screen, a statement you'll be very familiar with. Now, here's what I want you to do. I want you to close your eyes and repeat this over and over again to yourself. So go ahead. I'm serious. Everybody close your eyes. Repeat this phrase in your mind. I am a sinner. Now, with your eyes closed, as we sit with this statement for a second, I wonder what you're actually feeling in yourself. Because when I was doing this all week, where I felt it was in my chest, a weightiness, sort of like shame, it's where my shame lives. And then a little bit more down in my stomach where my anxiety lives, like there's a sense of helplessness every time I say this over and over to myself. I am a sinner. I am a sinner. I am a sinner. Now, open your eyes. There's a second statement coming on the screen that I want you to read. I battle sin every day. Now, go ahead, close your eyes. Start saying this over and over to yourself again. I wonder if you feel something a little differently. I wonder if all of a sudden the sensation isn't inside your body, but it's somewhere right next to you. That while there's truth in the first statement, we are sinners, it makes us the problem instead of having to deal with the thing itself. Okay, you can open your eyes. Now, I'm not saying that Paul was a counselor, that he was somehow trained in psychology, but this is a very real experience, and this subtle switch in anything gives us a gift. Because all of a sudden, when I'm no longer beating myself up saying, I'm a sinner, I'm a sinner, I'm a sinner, but I battle sin every day, I am an agent in my own story. I'm not someone who's dominated by something, but I am someone who has the choice to fight back. 
And when we get to our text today, that's what Paul is calling us to. You are someone who fights back. But it wasn't always that way. We have to get a running start into this text so that we can understand how we got there. Now, he starts talking about sin all the way back in chapter 5 when he starts to describe the meta-narrative. We're all very familiar with this. We were created to live in relationship with God, to exist in perfect harmony with him, and then one person messed it all up. One person made a choice and ruined it for everybody. But in the course of time, God gave humanity a gift. And the greatness of that gift, when we think about it, in proportion to the trespass, is actually unbelievable. Incredible. I remember when our former pastor, Andrew Rawlinson, was preaching on this text several years ago. It was just after we'd come back from our first trip to Romania. And I remember Andrew and I on that first trip to Romania speaking with Mihai. Several of you will know Mihai. He's one of our mission partners over there. And when we were chatting to Mihai, he started describing all these health problems he had, including these metal plates in his legs and in his arms. Because he lived downwind of Chernobyl in the mid-80s. The greatest nuclear disaster in history. And his bones literally started to rot from the radiation. Now, I looked up some facts and figures in the earliest I could find, or the latest I could find was 2005. But as of 2005, here were the numbers. Only 30 people had actually died in the fallout of the day. And 1986. But since then, they estimated that 40,000 people had died as a direct result of Chernobyl. And there was another 5 million people at the time living with defects, whether it be birth defects or infertility of all those things. And when Andrew was describing this, he invited us to imagine that there was one person who missed pressing a button that day. Their only job was to hit a button every 12 hours to keep everything from melting down, and they forgot. Now imagine, 20 years later, if one person could come and clean up the entire mess. All the environmental disaster, all of the health issues, one person with one act could clear it all up. And this is the difference between the grace and the trespass. One person making one small mistake that started all the disorder, all the chaos, all the sin in the world throughout history. One person cleaning up the mess in the lives of billions of people. But between the two, we had the law. Now, the law came in and revealed something to us. We're just living our daily lives. We die. There's something wrong. We don't know what it is. But I want you to imagine that you're just living your life, and one day somebody comes down and slams a ledger down in front of you. And they open, up to a name that, they open up to a page that has your account in it. And you see that you are hundreds of thousands of pounds in debt. You were doing stuff every day, and you were just racking up credit with the creditors. And you're enslaved to this person you owe money to. Now, this person who shows you the ledger, their name is the law. And they say, not to worry. I can show you how to get back to zero. I can show you how to get out of debt. So the law does, and it gets you back to zero. You're no longer in debt. But in order to keep living, you have to stay enslaved. You keep falling back into debt. You keep working your way back to zero. And it just becomes that over and over and over again. And then all of a sudden, you wake up one day, and you turn to your page, 
and there's billions of pounds in your account. You never have to worry about this ledger again. Someone has taken you from someone who has to work off your debt every single day to a person who is completely debt-free, rich, and never has to worry about it again in your life. That's the gift. The law was weakened by flesh. It could never put us in a positive position. The author of Hebrews would say, the law can make us ceremonial clean, but it can't ever put us in a positive position with God. That's what the gift does. And actually, when you look at the amount of debt and how much money you have now, you're like, it looks, my, my billions of pounds looks a lot better against all the, the hundreds of thousands of pounds of when I was in debt. So I've got this wacky idea. What if... I keep going into debt so that all the billions of pounds look great, right? Or, to put it like Paul puts it, should we go on sinning so that grace may abound? By no means. That's an odd translation. We don't have good words for it. It's a weird construction. One of the PhD students in our home group on Thursday night, when we asked, can you translate this for us, said, no, dum-dums. Shall we go on sinning so that grace may abound? No, dum-dums. You're missing the whole point. You're not just subscribing to a set of beliefs. Something has happened to you, and this is what Abby described to us last week. In Christ, you have died to your former master, sin. And while we await the resurrection of our bodies, like Jesus' resurrection of his body, we carry the power of that resurrection in our bodies now. There's life there. Life that can live in relationship with God and life that makes us alive to the reality that we have been enslaved to sin. We have agency now. We have choice. I don't sit back every day and say, I'm a sinner, I'm a sinner, I'm a sinner. I stand up every day and say, I am going to fight the thing that has enslaved me my whole life. That's the difference. That's the big reveal. And that's why Paul, in our first verses, 12 through 14, it's actually finishing up the first part of the argument that was made last week. Don't sin in your mortal bodies and offer them as instruments. That's actually a really soft translation. The word there is weapon. Don't offer your bodies as weapons to sin. Offer your bodies as weapons against sin for righteousness. For sin shall no longer be your master because you're not under the law, you're under grace. In other words, the ledger's been removed. Don't think about it. So then the question arises. Oh, if the ledger's been removed, does that mean we can just keep on sinning? No, dum-dums. Don't you know who sin is? Don't you know what sin wants to do to you? And we land in the main part of our text this morning. It's the second in a long block of argumentation. It's the second rhetorical question that he's going to ask as he's talking about sin and the law and enslavement. But what he's given us again is that first gift. We don't have to kick our feet anymore saying, shucks, I couldn't do anything about it. I'm just a sinner. And he gives us some insights in how to battle this thing that has enslaved us. This thing called sin. First, I think we need to reflect on what true freedom is. Now, Paul uses a metaphor throughout this entire passage that we're uncomfortable with. The S word, slavery. And I think actually Paul's original audience would have also been uncomfortable with this. 
That's why we get that little aside in verse 19. I'm just using a metaphor that you'll understand. Because slavery was everywhere in the ancient world. And we could do a couple of things. We could spend some time talking about how slavery back then is, is different than the European and imperial versions that we're familiar with. Or we could talk about how we really wish Paul would, would have said, slavery is bad, don't do it, instead of just subtly subverting it in places like Ephesians 5 and in his letter to Titus. But all that misses the point. What I find interesting is why does that word slave bother us so much? Because the famous theologian Bob Dylan once told us, you're going to have to serve somebody. Well, it may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. Well, here's our agency. Before Jesus, there was no choice, and now we have a choice. But again, do we really have to be a slave what about my freedom? Now, I paused before I used this next metaphor. I was talking to Carmen about this, and I was like, I think I've got a really good illustration, but I don't know how to do it without making myself feel awesome and everybody else feel bad. And Carmen said, well, you could just stop being so awesome and everybody else could stop being so bad. So if you don't like this metaphor, blame Carmen. <laughs> so if you came and spent uh, a week just with me, following me around, you might think that I was raised in some sort of monastery with some sort of monkish discipline, and if I, if I deviated from it, I was going to get beaten. My day starts every day between 5 and 5.30, where I wake up, I read my Bible, I pray, and I journal. Until sometime between 6.30 and 7, when I leave the house and I go to the gym, where I train for 60 to 90 minutes before I'm accountable to everybody at 9 a.m. Now again... The reason I am this way, if you don't know my story, is because who I was at 25. When I was 25, I was 130 of mostly soft kilos. For those of you that speak American, that's nearly 300 pounds. One Lent, a friend of mine and I decided that we were going to fast for 40 days just like Jesus. Now we did everything terribly wrong to prepare our bodies and to sustain our bodies through this fast. Don't do it like I did, but... At the end of 40 days of not eating any solid food, you can imagine that I was not as fluffy as I was. But as soon as I started eating, the fluff came back. And then I had this epiphany. You know what? If I cannot put food into my body for 40 days, I can probably control the actual food that I am putting in my body every day. And so I got to work. I started tracking everything. I got on a home fitness program. I started logging miles. And then a year later, when I was 26, I was literally passing people who had known me for years but hadn't seen me in about eight months and did not recognize me. And at 26, I was doing things I didn't think were possible at 25. When I was 25 and heavy, I had to climb stairs every day. And at the end of climbing those stairs, I was out of breath for minutes and sometimes seeing stars. At 36, I was running a 10K in about a half hour. I was able to move, I was able to run, I was able to jump, I was able to pick up heavy things and pull myself and climb. And these are some habits that I've still developed to this day and continue to build habits on those. And some of my friends look at me like I'm crazy. Why do you restrict yourself so much? Why don't you have a little more fun? Why are you passing on dessert nine times out of 10 and going to bed at like 9, 9.30? doesn't seem like you're enjoying life. It seems like you're choosing hard things. You're not enjoying what it means to be human. 
But I had a long, hard think about this. Because it is hard to start putting away screens at 9 so I can prepare my body for sleep and waking up at 5 or 5.30 six days a week. But it was harder to have no sleep schedule at all, to feel like I couldn't drag myself out of bed, didn't have the energy to get up in the morning, just hit snooze over and over and over again until I had to run out of the door. It was hard to force my, it's hard to force myself to sit down and read the Bible and pray early in the morning, but it's harder to walk around all day and feel like I'm not connected to God. It's hard to load bars with heavy weights and, and stand up and down, but it's, it's harder not to be able to go up and down the stairs. It's hard to run all the time, but it was even harder to look at my kids when I was in youth ministry and say, you guys go on without me, I need to sit down and take a break. No, I found more freedom in the ability to do things that my body wants to do. My body naturally wants to sink into rhythms. My body wants to be strong. My body wants to do these things. And limiting my choices or having the, 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 the overwhelming amount of choice to eat whatever I want, to do whatever I want, wasn't making me a free human being. It was actually limiting me in some sort of way. I wasn't able to do what I should have been able to do. And when we think about freedom, we think about the variety and ability to choose. I am not free unless I have all the choices that are out there. And I am not free unless I can make any choice that I want to make, and it's totally up to me. And this isn't the way the ancients, or I think even the Bible, present freedom to us. Freedom is the ability to live in perfect congruence with what I was created to be. In other words, God created me to live in a relationship with him. I am not free unless I'm doing that. God has told me what it looks like to live in a relationship with him, and I am not free if I am choosing anything other than that. My freedom is found in my experience, in my relationship with God. Because that's who he created me to be. And that's how I experience freedom. And actually when I understand that that's what freedom is, there's plenty of choice. If you're artistic, if you're into aesthetics, go sit and watch a sunrise. Describe the beauty of it to God. Thank him for it. Praise him for it. Feel the love of a God who created that sunset and created you. Pour out of you into other people and in love to him. If you're a person who likes to read, go sit with the great thinkers of the world. Sit down with your Bible and the great theologians of the day and think about the mystery of a triune God. Think about a God who became a human being, who lived our existence and died and rose for our salvation. There's plenty of ways to find that freedom in God, but it's understanding what our freedom is. So that's our first insight. Reflecting on what true freedom is. The second is reflecting on the two lives. Because Paul describes two lives in verses 20 and 22. We were slaves to sin, or we can be slaves to God. Now what's interesting is he is telling um, his audience, reflect on what you used to do before you met Jesus. Now remember, he's writing to people who lived in Rome. Now, I'm often sort of stifling a chuckle when people say, oh, the Bible, it's, it's old-fashioned, it's behind the times, and I'm thinking to myself, you don't know the world 
that you don't know the Greco-Roman world that the New Testament in particular was born into. Because if you went and spent a week in ancient Rome, you might blush at what people were doing at the time. And actually, the New Testament, in a lot of ways, is much more radical then than it is compared to our society now. And all these people who came from these places who then found the love of God and started pursuing holiness because they realized that's our relationship with God, they started to become ashamed of what they did. And Paul's saying, do you really want to go back to all the stuff that made you ashamed? The stuff that was literally killing you? That disrupted your life with God and your life with those around you? Ask any recovering addict why they don't use their former substance of choice recreationally and see if they don't give you an exasperated answer. Seriously, tell a recovering alcoholic, come on, it's just one beer. They know what one beer in the past has led to. They don't want to go back. It was actually killing them, disrupting their lives, disrupting their health, disrupting their families. So why go and play with it? Paul's saying the same thing here. Sin that enslaved you was literally killing you, disrupting your life. I made the statement, and it's anecdotal, so feel free to disagree with me, but we were talking in home group, and I, I just sort of, we were reflecting on Romans 6, and I said, you know, the folks I tend to hear say, hey, because we're under grace, it doesn't really matter how we live, tend to be people like me when I grew up. Because I grew up in a Christian household where I wasn't allowed to do anything. So it was always tempting, it was always enticing. I always wanted to sort of justify why I wanted to do the thing. And it couldn't really be all that bad because Jesus would still love me if I tried it out, right? I never felt a rock at rock bottom. So I was always willing to play around with it. Some people, people who have been there will tell you, don't fool around with sin. These Romans who had experienced depths of depravity, don't fool around with it. Don't go back with it. And then we are invited to reflect on the two lives. Or sorry, we've reflected on the two lives. We've reflected on freedom. And then we're invited to reflect on the two slave masters. The two agents we're uh, invited to follow. And we're given a really interesting gift there's a juxtaposition between a gift and a wage. Now, that's so commonplace that sometimes we read right past it, but really, really think about this. A wage is something you earn. A gift is something you cannot earn, because if you earned it, by its very definition, it would be a wage. And think about what the two parties not only want to uh, give you, but what they're actually offering. See, sin is offering death. Certainly, it means physical death. Paul has already traced that out in Romans 5, 12 through 20. But elsewhere, when Paul talks about death, he talks about other types of death, mainly spiritual death. Like I said, the inability to live in perfect relationship with God. He says in Ephesians 2, before we believed, we were dead in our trespasses and sins, and Christ made us alive. And I think that's part of what's going on here as well. I keep coming back to the idea we dealt with at the start. 
See, we tend to think of sin almost exclusively as a condition or actions that we undergo. But Paul, for for a chapter and a half, has been talking about sin as if it's a character in our story. Something that wants to battle us, something that wants to enslave us, and he gives us permission to fight back against it. But also, sin is wily. Sin is clever. Sin is enticing. Enticing. Lying to us ever so subtly, saying things like, hey, look, you're under grace now. You don't really need to worry about judgment. Come back and serve me. And like that addict who's not completely committed to sobriety, we keep coming back. And though sin is correct, we'll miss out on eternal judgment. We can still feel the effects of those death, of that death. Living in sin cutting ourselves off from God, isolated from the God and people whom we're sinning against. And we suffer the fallout, and the wages we get are death. That's what's off on offer from the first master. But the second, the second gives us a gift. And we can't earn it. It's not up for me to go out and to be holy so that God will give this to me. That's a wage. And this grace, this gift, is like the grace and trespass we saw. It's so much greater than death. Both masters want to own me. One will pay me with death. The other will give me eternal life. One wants to dominate me so that I work towards my own end and wind up paying the ultimate price. The other, in the life, death, and resurrection paid by Jesus, pays the ultimate price on my behalf and wants to eliminate my end entirely, regardless of my performance. The salary on offer is terrible. The gift available is almost entirely unbelievable. And so we're asked, which are we going to serve? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the good news of Jesus, the offer, Lord, to be woken up to the reality that we have a choice that each and every day we choose to be enslaved by something. But God, your service, you say, is easy. Your yoke is easy and your burden is light. You give us life and you give us life to the full. You give us true freedom. So let us rejoice and choose that. Amen.